Welcome to the Cross Loganville's podcast channel. Thanks for joining us as we continue our series on Just Like Jesus. This is the favorite sermon prep I've ever done before, and you'll, you'll hear why in just a few minutes. Uh, but uh, this Christmas season is a little bit different for Kara and my family. We knew this for the last few months. That is because uh, we just got back from Lakeland, Florida, where we spent a lot of time, where both sides of our families lived for a very long time. We were down there, just got back a few days ago, uh, because last week my older sister-in-law got married, so we were down there. Uh, my little sister-in-law, Candace, uh, graduated with her master's in business, and uh, I got to spend a lot of good time with my family, my grandpa, um, and everybody was just really happy, right? Because people are getting married, people are graduating. It was just a very good, fun, packed time. And so very busy, but uh, very enjoyable. We come back here, and Kara and Candace really realize the Christmas uh, season is really, really shortened for us. We've only got about a week. Nothing in the house is decorated. We don't have a Christmas tree. I was really thankful that I was able to get one for 50% off the other day. So we may want to do this every now and then again. Uh, But we decided in order to make the most of the time we have left, we need to pack as much as we can. And so I have eaten three times the amount of Christmas cookies uh, as normal for others, obviously. Uh, Watching Home Alone at like one and a half times the speed and those booby traps go off way faster, all right, at that point. We're thinking about keeping our Christmas decorations up for six months instead of the normal four months that Georgians are famous for. Uh, There is something to that stereotype. Uh, There's a guy... Uh, whose house I pass every day. Last time I saw his Halloween stuff was still up. And uh, I think he put a Santa hat on the glow-in-the-dark skeleton, uh, which I thought was very, very clever. So we're making the most of the Christmas season. And uh, as little as this season has been Christmassy for us culturally, this has been one of the best weeks of my life that I remember because I've soaked my mind in the material I'll be sharing today, which is about God being with us. That is the absolute actual core of what Christmas is about, is the celebration of God coming imminently to human beings in the person and body of Jesus Christ on earth, um, and now dwelling intimately in the hearts of believers through his Holy Spirit. It is the thing we celebrate at Christmas and the best news for every single day. And so uh, that's what we'll be talking about today. Uh, If you have your notes, uh, an overall idea of where I'm going for this is numbered one, two, and three. And this is the situation. We rarely remember that God with us is the life that we were created for. It is what we, how we were meant to live at all times. Um, But through a framework of discipleship to Jesus, that being our relationship with Jesus, we can learn, we can be patient with ourselves. We can learn to attend uh, to God's presence, receive his joy from the presence of God so that we can continually and increasingly become conduits of the presence of God on earth. Um, And so, yeah, first part, we rarely remember that God with us is the life that we were created for. As Tim mentioned earlier, uh, in Matthew chapter 1, Uh, Jesus' family tree is listed. He's got some big names in that family tree. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in there. David and Solomon are super recognizable names. And then, of course, Jesus, with the greatest name, is listed in that family tree. And then a few verses after, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, there is the reference in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which talks about how a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
Now, I think it's helpful to ask ourselves, how do people gain their nicknames normally, right? When you were growing up, you knew some people with nicknames that were from admiration. Some was a form of bullying, all right? But normally, when nicknames come about, it is because there are characteristics of that person that are recognizable. Uh, one of the coolest in all history that I'm aware of was a guy uh, who led uh, the Jewish people to some period of religious freedom, a uh, hundred something years before Jesus came. His name was Judah Maccabee, and he led a revolt with his fellow Jewish people uh, that gained religious freedom for his people. Today, Hanukkah is, uh, celebrates those, those moments where they led a little revolt and were able to have some freedom for themselves. And his nickname was The Hammer, Judah the Hammer Maccabee, which is the greatest manliest nickname I think I've ever heard. Uh, the Rock is a pretty cool nickname, but wrestling, I wonder sometimes if it's real, you know? I mean, I think, <laughs> I think sometimes leading a, re a revolt <laughs> that secures real freedom for your people uh, is a little bit more substantial. And so the hammer is someone you don't give suggestions to, right? I mean, his presence has a certain type of authority that inspires confidence in his people, and they follow, and they join in on what the hammer is doing, right? But when Jesus uh, has the, the name God with us, you have to ask yourself, what is his presence like to the observer who did not recognize him? His own disciples did not know the fullness of who Jesus was, even as they followed him for, for so long all over the place. Uh, the scripture talks about how when the presence of Jesus travels to different places, demons recognize it and they get freaked out. And when he casts demons out of people, they say, are you here to torture us before the appointed time? Give us a little bit more time. Cast us into those pigs over there, right? Uh, leave us alone for a little bit longer. The presence of Jesus Christ, the fullness of God, is torture for the demonic, right? There are times where other people's presence can be torture to us for one reason or another, right? Um, sometimes it's personality conflict. Sometimes it could be envy. In the situation... Jesus, when he goes around the religious leaders of the day, they also get pretty uncomfortable. They get jealous because the fullness of God in Jesus exposes the hollowness and nastiness of the Pharisees. And so their plan is to kill him. They're like, we're just going to try to get rid of this guy. And even though the presence of Jesus is, uh, drives away the demonic and exposes the falseness, the people that are loneliest in his presence, find his presence utterly magnetic. And so we're talking about people with leprosy, untouchable people, uh, the woman with the issue of blood, they do whatever they got to do. Even though it's illegal to go in public, they go and get in the presence of Jesus. People who have been forgiven their sins come over and break perfume over his feet. And this lady washes her, uh, his feet with her hair because the presence and goodness of Jesus is that magnetic. They flourish within his presence. And at this point in life, because his Holy Spirit has come to replace his physical presence on earth, this is something available to us as we develop the sense to uh, engage it. And so in a very real way, they knew God with us in a way that a lot of Christians really simply have not experienced, even though we have a fuller knowledge as to why he was called God with us. Paul tells us about this uh, with hindsight, with perfect clarity, as the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write. In the book of Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20, he says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Today, I'm going to be urging us to develop the habit, or at least begin thinking about developing the habit, of turning our attention to the affectionate attention that God has on us in every moment, even without our noticing it. And the reason that I feel utterly justified to do this is because everything else, according to the scripture, that we normally pay attention to are through and for Jesus. Everything we interact with is his stuff anyway. It is meant to be a pointer to his goodness. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the, Christ, uh, on the cross. One of my favorite sayings I've heard from a theologian is that if you want to know what God looks like, learn about Jesus Christ. Read about him, learn about him, get him in your head. Imagine what it would be like to be around him on earth from Jesus' life. We know what God is like. Uh, Jesus describes uh, eternal life in John chapter 17, verse 3. This is in your notes as well. As this, he says, eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And so that word, uh, Tim has mentioned quite a few times, it's important, uh, it's not the type of knowledge that helps you check the right box on a test. It's the type of knowledge that is based on deep experience. The same way a mechanic's hands know how to fix a car, right? We're talking embodied knowledge that has come from consistent interaction. And so that's the type of life we're meant to have is to interact with God uh, at that type of level. And I think it's very, very important, as obvious as this might sound, we run past it. We need to think about really what life is. If life is what we're meant to live, we should think about what life is. And Dallas Willard has helped me a lot by saying a plant is a type of life, right? A plant interacts with its environment. It takes nutrients from the soil, responds to the sun, produces oxygen. We got a great thing going with the plants, right? Plants are great. Uh, but they're not going to do a good job keeping you company, right? Cats are a little bit more sophisticated. I'm not saying they're the best company either. Um, dogs might be a little bit better there. But cats are definitely more sophisticated than plants, right? Now, there's no question for the cat people that they are the best stars on the internet. No question, all right? Um, cats interact with their environment when they see a mirror and they think it's their competitor, and they jump way higher than you think they can, and every move their competitor has, I mean, they've already thought of it, right? Cats interact with their environment in a way that's more sophisticated than plants. And then a level above that would be children, right? Human kids. Uh, one of the highs of my life, <laughs> understatement, I guess, um, they make a mess. Sometimes cats make less of a mess. Um, one of the highs of my life is watching my two little kids, one and a half and three and a half, interact with each other. My grandpa said when we were in Lakeland, they are full of life, right? And he's just, it's just a joy to watch little kids interact. And they know how. It blows my mind. Nora doesn't speak English, like, at all. She speaks, like, four words. Uh, Daddy, Candy, Hi, and Mama, right? And her and Ricky just get each other. They totally understand each other. They run around. They've got their relationship, their interaction. Uh, the other day, Madison, my ministry assistant, said, I gotta tell you something, she goes, I told Ricky, you know, someday Nora's gonna talk and you can have conversations. And he goes, 
we, she does talk, and we do have conversations. <laughs> and I thought, maybe he's right. Maybe we're all the ones that don't understand her. I don't know. Uh, but that being said, 20 years from now, their level of interaction, not just with each other, but with the world, will, God willing, increase tremendously, right? Around the dinner table, the conversation will, will be more in-depth and all this. Think of these different levels of life, and now think about what life would look like if human beings entered into the type of life that God has for them, which is one of consistent interaction with the God who has his affectionate attention and presence to you at all times. Not because of who you are, but because his character is love and because he is powerful enough to create and sustain a universe. The scripture says the number of hairs on our head are numbered. It is just not difficult for him to pay attention to that many people and to really, really care about us. Um, so, second point, through discipleship, uh, that framework of patience with ourselves, and that framework of consistent trust in Jesus, we can learn to receive joy from the presence of God. Uh, one of my favorite scriptures is listed there on the notes, Psalm 1611, where David says, in your presence is the fullness of joy. This is what David says. The word for that in Hebrew of presence is like face or gaze. When you are facing me, I can be in the fullness of joy. And this is, it's important to notice, this, we're not talking about giddiness. We're not talking about ecstasy. We're talking about more a sense that has become a characteristic, more of an attitude, a way of looking at everything with the knowledge in the back of our head that God is really, really good, right? And he's got good things going on, and he loves us more than we can understand. Um, Christians are meant to be fueled by joy. Um, it says in the scripture that the joy of the Lord is our strength. One of my favorite things I've ever heard Tim Cash say was, we are talking about uh, a denomination that's quite a bit less fun to be around. Sometimes it can be kind of tiring. And he said, the joy of the Lord is not their strength. <laughs> and I thought, that's, that's pretty spot on, very good. Uh, but as we know, um, sometimes, of course, you know, Christians are maligned in the media and whatever, but I don't think it's maligning us to, to say we're not quite known for the fullness of joy. I mean, we're just not known for love of neighbor to the degree that Jesus was able to love. We're not known for this pervasive sense of well-being, as Willard would say, joy is. So we have to ask ourselves, why is that? And Tim has talked about this multiple times. It's important to know that especially in the southern United States, in the Bible Belt, uh, there is a form of cultural Christianity that's basically a container only that oftentimes is either empty or full of stuff that's anti-Jesus multiple times. This, is just, this has been going on for some time. It's not new. It's not unique to the United States. This has happened in other parts of the world as well, um, and it's been going on for a long time. Uh, back in the day, in 1739, George Whitfield, that's... Mysterious. <laughs> I don't think that was me. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> George Whitfield called this group almost Christians. And he said that an almost Christian is one who is fond of the form of Christianity but never experiences the power of godliness in his heart. And John Wesley said, the church is full of Christians who have not gone all the way with Jesus, who have not really made it a habit to revolve their life around his loving presence to us and everything else that he's holding together. More recently, uh, Dallas Willard has coined the phrase vampire Christian, 
which refers to this idea, I mean, to this reduction of the gospel, this oversimplification of the gospel, that basically, uh, it's this, you don't want to go to hell, right? Okay, well, the way you avoid that is by saying the prayer to Jesus, he can forgive you of our sins, and because his blood is what forgives us, that's all you need. And this produces people who have no interest in actually hanging out with God, no interest in obedience, no interest in even going to heaven. It's more of a, I really just don't want to go to hell, right? And so Willard says, these are Christians who have only an interest in Jesus' blood, no interest in his presence, no interest in his teachings, right? Um, when I was in Lakeland years ago, I was mentoring a, a student pastor who said, hey, I got kind of a weird situation I was like, all right. And he says, uh, one of my students I asked, we're at coffee, and he says, I asked him, you know, what do you, what do you want from your relationship with the Lord? And the kid's like, I don't know. And he goes, okay, but like, you know, if it was to improve in any way, how would it improve? And he's like, I, I don't know. And he's like, all right, but like if you could ask for God for one thing, what would it be? And the kid says, all right, to be honest with you, this is really just my backup plan in case there actually is a God. And I thought, the difference between this kid and so many people in the United States is that he's really honest, right? I mean, teenagers will be that. I think uh, this is well known. <clears throat> now, contrast that phenomenon of the person who only wants to pray the prayer to avoid hell, doesn't have an interest in God or heaven, um, there's a man who lived in the 1600s named Brother Lawrence. He wrote a book called The Practice of the Presence of God, one of my favorites. I notice something new in it every time I read it. And uh, I had never noticed this part of the book. Uh, but his, his story is basically this. He's a soldier in France in the 1600s, eventually joins a monastery, uh, is a cook. And, you know, in monasteries and convents, you do a lot of praying and serving. He realizes eventually that he doesn't stop praying when he goes and does his other types of work. And it was said that the kitchen and the altar were the same to him. And it did not matter if he picked up a straw from the ground or preached to multitudes. His only goal was to love God and remain in the loving gaze of God. This was the best part of his life. He experienced the fullness of joy. What I never noticed before is that in addition to all that, he also had this fear for whatever reason. Maybe it was a misunderstanding of salvation or whatever, but he was terrified that he was going to hell for like 40 years. He could not be convinced that he was not rejected and all this type of thing. And the way he finally, he reconciled uh, his relationship to the Lord was realizing that he says, the only time I even, the reason I began a relationship with the Lord in the first place was because I loved him. I've only aimed to love him. He's not talking about earning. He's saying, as long as I have consciousness and attention, there's nothing better to spend it on than being in the presence of God, and he can do with me as he pleases. I mean, this is like, this is someone who has really, I think, experienced the goodness of God. And, of course, he did develop faith that um, Jesus had actually forgiven him, and he progressed in that way, and he did get peace. This is someone who experienced that saying and its truth that the point of walking with God is not to arrive but to walk with God. It's not the type of situation where you know somebody at work and you really don't enjoy them at all, but they got Super Bowl tickets and they say, hey, you want to come? And you say, I mean, if the price for free tickets is hanging out with you for a while, I guess I can do that. You wouldn't say it, obviously. But it's, it's the opposite of this, where you would go to Jesus to the DMV, right, because... His presence is that life-giving. 
So I'm going through this uh, book with one of my youth leaders, Caleb, and uh, he coined a phrase here that I told him I was going to steal, and I said, this is fantastic. He mentioned that one of the things that's really difficult about this is all of the attention alternatives there are, right? All the other things that do absorb our mind. And uh, so I've made a little progressive list of things that are important, right? Wealth is important. Stewardship is important. Enthusiasm, adoration, these are important. The problem is that oftentimes these will be the chief aim of people's life. And at that case, we're simply choosing something lesser than God's goodness to focus our attention on. And these things will form us in a certain way if we let them be the supreme aim of our life. So one of my favorite sayings uh, is that you don't need money to be happy. You need something to be enthusiastic about. And I'm not dismissing the pain of poverty, certainly They've done studies and show that poverty will make you miserable, but wealth won't necessarily make you happy, right? There's a certain type of need we have. Even Paul says this, if we have uh, clothes and food, we can be content, right? There's a certain level everybody does need. But Solomon in Ecclesiastes, which uh, we're going to start reading in CSM Reads in January, <clears throat> great way to begin the year uh, with that book, but uh, it's basically the story of Solomon trying to anything other than God to give him pleasure and enthusiasm. And this guy has a hold of everything that cultures have ever told us are part of the good life. All the money, all the authority. He's got a lot of lady friends, okay? Um, he's got building projects. Uh, people come from all over to hear him talk. He has got what most people would consider an epically successful life. And the whole thing is about him not being sad, but being outraged at how empty every single thing is. He is not sad. He is angry at how unfulfilling everything is. And so he is the proof that you can have all the options, all the means in the world, but if you are unable to be enthusiastic about any of them, it does no good. It's like being at a buffet with no sense of taste, right? It's just, it's a cruel situation. Uh, but that being said, adoration which is much more social. Adoration is better than enthusiasm. Enthusiasm has to do with tasks and projects, and they are a serious blessing to lose all attention that could be on yourself to the task you're doing. Like, this is called a flow activity. People who give their total mind to their work are happier, oftentimes. But adoration is its own reward. We've all felt this if you've been around a little tiny family member, when Nora runs past me really fast and smiles, and I say, you are just so cute. I'm not sucking up to her. She doesn't even really understand it. She's not going to put me like in her will or something. She's not going to remember this. Um, that was its own reward, right? So adoration is better than even enthusiasm, and it should follow then if God is the creator of everything else that we possibly could adore and just express thankfulness and praise to he has to be infinitely more worthy and sustainable in all of this adoration. It is just a matter of us, it being beyond our imagination. It's where the fullness of life is found in consistent adoration of God for his goodness and his power and his character. Uh, this, I've always known this in theory. I've read the book of Ecclesiastes before, but uh, recently I turned 35 Nick Slade says that 35 is 40 rounded up, so I feel pretty good for a 40-year-old. Um, he knows math way better than I do, so. Um, but we're celebrating it uh, during a week in Destin Beach, and midway through the week, the kids are taking a nap. Uh, Kara's up there. I'm having some exercise and reflection time. I'm walking and just, I mean, soaking in the beach. I'm from Florida, love it. 
And it was just this, every step I'm taking, I'm reflecting on, Kara is just absolutely amazing. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. My kids, I just absolutely love my kids. I am so thankful to be on staff at the Cross Loganville. It never occurred to me that I would find a church staff that I trust this much. The stuff going on in CSM is fantastic. The team we have, I'm just like overcome with gratitude as I'm walking. And the beach is beautiful. And it's just, I, I couldn't have turned 35 in a better situation. I'm just extremely blessed. And I had this feeling that I haven't felt since I was like maybe 20 years old. We, we may, you may have had this feeling before, like when you're like not in a romantic relationship or, or whatever. And I remember being on a trip with my friends, seeing the sunset or seeing a mountain and having this feeling, I wish I had someone to share this with, right? That feeling, I wish I had someone to share this with. And I thought, but you know, you're, you're sharing this week with the people you love the most, with the core members of your family. What do you mean you wish you had someone to share this with? You are sharing it with them. I wish that I could share my witness with them with someone. That is the feeling of knowing I am meant to share this with Jesus, right? The whole point of this, they are not fulfilling in and of themselves. They can't be. They're not supposed to be. God would not have us put our dependence on those we love in the way that we're supposed to put our dependence on him. Every good and perfect blessing is meant to be a sign of God's goodness, which is not a depressing thing at all. Um, as I was preparing for this, I read Dallas Willard talking about how one time uh, he was over in England and sees a, a homeless lady sleeping on a bench, and he has this thought, uh, this is someone's daughter, where are her people? Why is she out here by herself? And he says, it, it, he had that same type of feeling when his first son was born, when his first child was born, and he says, as he's holding this kid, I remember feeling this with Ricky too, you feel this joy and this total helplessness because you realize I will not be able to protect this kid from the human suffering that is universal, that everyone will experience in one way or another. I'm not gonna be able to protect this kid from human meanness. I won't be able to protect this kid from his own bad decisions. And then finally, as time gets uh, closer and closer to the end, I can't really be with, I mean deeply with, my relatives that are passing away and they can't be with me, right? And, and Willard says, that's, this would be a tremendously devastating fact if not for God. And he says, God, because he is spirit, is able to penetrate and intertwine every fiber of the human self. This is the closeness, the immediacy, the intimacy that we are meant to have with God. I'm convinced that no one is really afraid of failure. No one's really afraid of rejection. No one's afraid of poverty or sickness. I don't even think we're afraid of death as much as we're afraid of loneliness. And that loneliness will always be in a certain place if God is not the one to fill that spot that he has absolutely created for himself to fill. So this, when I've done talks like this in the past, um, people get kind of discouraged because they're like, I know it makes sense that I should pay more attention to God. I know I should pray more. It even makes sense that he would be more enjoyable than all he has made. But do you understand how distracting life is? It's like, obvious, yes, unquestionably. We have to be realistic about this. See, the biggest enemy of giving more attention to God is perfectionism. But Dallas Willard says the opposite or the remedy to perfectionism isn't quitting, it's progress. Progress happens from patience. And so I think that it's helpful to drop another name of a guy who accomplished this. When I first read that Brother Lawrence had developed this habit and had experienced some of the best moments any human being had by giving his attention to God, 
thought he was single and lived in a monastery. Like, he, he doesn't have a normal life. He's supposed to be doing that. Someone I discovered after that um, really gives a, a pretty inspirational example. His name is Frank LeBach, and he was a missionary. Um, and another fear of this is if, that's, if I got my head on the clouds, I'll be too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good, right? The point is to let the heavenly-mindedness become heavenly-heartedness, and then you'll do plenty of earthly good, right? This is exactly what Frank LeBach did. He's a missionary, and uh, he's ministering to hostile Muslims in the Philippines. And he realizes if I preach, they're going to kill me. They consider me an enemy already. I will make sure that I train my attention to receive the presence of God and just walk with that presence to this group of people and serve them. And his results uh, yielded hundreds of thousands of people learning to read. That was his big thing. His literacy foundation is thriving even today, but did a lot of good, right? And when you read his journal in the 1930s, it's filled with struggle. Like he keeps getting down on himself for failure, this type of thing. But eventually, he trains his attention to be more attentive to God. And he says, now I like God's presence so much that when for a half an hour or so he slips out of, my, out of my mind, as he does many times a day, I feel as though I had lost something very precious in my life. Some hours spent by some night watchman, or in other words, someone who can get bored very, very easily, who does not have the good life compared to a flashy king or something, says the night watchman might be the one to have the most glorious hours ever on earth. Uh, Tim Keller says that <clears throat> your religion is what you think about in solitude. Your religion is what you think about when you don't have to be thinking about anything. And if we reflect for any amount of time, it's almost certainly going to be the phone, right? Our attention does go somewhere at least 100 times a day. The stats on how often people, and this, is, this changes along generational lives, the amount of time we want our attention occupied by something is measurable. The amount of times phones are checked for that desire for connection. We do have this desire for connection. We just often look for it in a place that's engineered to be addictive and not really helpful to us. Um, so that being said, this can be considered a really difficult goal to d begin to give our attention to the presence of God, to his affectionate attention to us more often. But years I've been working on this project, and the single easiest thing that I've, I've come up with so far, and this is really helpful anyway, because I think this is another goal of discipleship. One of the goals of discipleship would be to see everything as Jesus would see in your position. So Christians often have an uneasy relationship with finances, like we feel guilty or we feel just uneasy, right, about money. I really think the remedy to greed or fear would simply to see a dollar and see whatever Jesus in your position would see. You couldn't see it as more than it is. You couldn't treasure it more than God if you're looking at that thing as Jesus in your position were, as, as he was. And I think that one of the most helpful things we can do to return our attention to God's affectionate attention on us and remind, him, remind us of his goodness to us is to see other people the way that God would see them. So this is very practical stuff. This isn't particularly sophisticated. But about a few months ago, I realized I need to work on seeing my family and my friends in a way that reminds me of God's goodness, right? And so, for example, uh, when I see Kara, I am reminding myself uh, that what Kara means to me, what I, how she reminds me of God, is God's kindness to me. 
that is just way more than I ever would have asked for. And I'm not even just saying I married up, which obviously that's true. Um, but in addition to that, even just crossing paths with her was something that is a miracle in my mind, right? That God has shown his kindness to me every day of my life by knowing Kara that I don't doubt his goodness because of this, right? It's not like that had to happen to prove it to me, but I am convinced, right, with Ricky when you have your heart stolen by your little kid and you realize, ah, if anything ever happened to this kid, I don't know what I would do, right? Putting him to bed at night, I had to tell myself, you know this, biblically, God loves you more than you love your kid. He loves your kid more than you love your kid. If that's true, can you, God loves me more than I love my son. I mean, there is nothing, what else would I spend my brain thinking about, right? This is the best thing to form my attention, right? Again, because of who he is, not because of who I am, because of his character, not mine. For Nora, if you know our story at all, when I see Nora, I think about the spiritual power of God that invades the physical universe and rewires stuff to save the little girl's life when doctors had dismissed her, suggested abortions, all this type of thing, right? When I see Candace, my little sister-in-law who lives with us, um, I think God can make good people. God can just make people be really, really good, which is a very encouraging thing to know when you're in ministry, right? Because we are depraved oftentimes. But to know someone that you really trust and say, this is just a good person that's inspirational. When I think of Danny Joyner, I think of the diligence of God and how brilliantly he has designed our bodies to work. He took care of the details, right? Danny takes care of the details. Um, when I think of Tim Cash, I think about the belief that God has in people and his desire to coach them up. Uh, when I think of my dad, I think of God's utter sincerity, right? His not pretending. When I think of my mom, I think of the other's focusedness. When I think of my father-in-law, I think of God's self-control. And when I think of my mother-in-law, who I can converse with for hours and hours because both of us can really talk, it makes it really easy to believe I could have a conversational with relationship with God for a really long time, right? And if you need to be convinced of that, find someone that you could talk with continuously, right? So the thought that I've had in mind as I've prepped this entire thing, um, the inspiration for it, what I kept returning my attention to was this vision and this specific goal. I wanted to begin with this. Kara told me I should say it at the end, but what I picture is the people in my family, the people I work with, the people that I love the most, going through normal parts of the day, taking out the trash, driving somewhere, getting your paycheck, um, watching TV, all of the normal stuff, the big stuff, the boring stuff, just all of it, and at different moments, our attention returning to the fact that God's affectionate attention is on you right now and he loves you more than you love yourself and he loves those other people around you, the ones that you like and you don't like more than you can imagine. This is the best news. And the result of that memory, that remembering, that act of remembering to give our attention to God, making us tell ourselves, I am the luckiest person that's ever lived. I, I, I just, it's not a comparison anything, but I mean like, I couldn't be any more fortunate in any circumstance. Our season's gonna change? Definitely. I mean, there are certain seasons you're gonna enjoy more, but in this moment, a million dollars wouldn't help, right? Things will improve in some way or another. Relationships will be developed, jobs will be had, jobs will be lost, different things will happen, but in this moment, 
I could not be more fortunate because the one thing I was created for, my mind is settled on, and it is forming me, and it is getting easier and easier for the rest of life all into eternity to be funded by the joy of God because of his affectionate attention on us. Thank you so much for watching the message today. We hope that this message inspired you and challenged you as you watched it. I encourage you to check out our website. It's thecrawlsloganville.org. There's a lot of information about our church there uh, that maybe can help you answer some questions about who we are. And don't forget that on our website, we have old messages and archived series.